Today's episode is sponsored by my absolute favorite education and exercise app, the Empowered Motherhood Program. Listen up to hear more later and head to empoweredmother.com.au. Welcome back to the Pelvic Health Podcast. This is Lori Forner, and today's episode is all about postpartum exercise adherence. I had such a good conversation with fellow Canadian and PhD candidate Stephanie Paplinski. She's a prenatal and postpartum fitness specialist whose research focuses on the benefits of exercise on maternal and infant health. Not only does she teach part-time at Western University and Fanshawe College, she is an international lecturer. And when I say international, um, there listen to her background. It's so interesting. She's a business owner. She's a certified strength and conditioning specialist, a television personality. Oh, I miss Rogers TV. She's a keynote speaker. All the while, while she's doing her PhD in exercise and pregnancy lab at Western University under the world-renowned pregnancy researcher, Dr. Michelle Matola. Is she a superwoman? Yes, I believe she is. We had such a good chat about her research um, that is focusing on creating exercise programs and interventions for postpartum women, including incorporating their infants and increasing adherence. And actually, right now, she is just about to wrap up recruitment for her third and super, super important study. It's an online questionnaire, and I would love it if all any of you that are eligible, please find the link in the show notes, fill it out, and share it. It's on postpartum physical activity, pelvic floor dysfunction, and depressive symptoms. So I hope you guys enjoy listening to this chat as much as I did. Enough from me. Enjoy, Steph. So because I have read your bio and you have so much of a background, if you can bring me backwards um, and tell me what your background is and then how you kind of ended up where you are now, which I know will probably be a bit of a story, but I love hearing these. Like rewind little stuff. So um, when I was a little kid, I was, um, I'm from a really big family and my grandma passed away when I was six, but my grandma she was like, she was very close uh, to me. And I was like one of her quote unquote favorite uh, grandchildren, even though she had like a hundred, but uh, when she passed away, it really impacted me. And uh, I took that into like my young adulthood. And, and what I realized was as I was growing up, like we grew up on um, a farm for the majority of my life. And it was like a family farm and everyone worked. So um, I worked on the farm and then my dad had a roofing company. So I started working for his roofing company when I was about seven years old until I went to university. And during that time, like as a female in a very male dominated industry, like my dad didn't treat me or my mom any different for working there. The guys didn't treat us any differently, like the workers. And I just always thought it was really important to be strong and fit. And that's how my family had raised me. And that's how my grandmother had raised her children because she had 16 of them. And when I went to university, I took kinesiology at Western and I love it. I was, it was like probably the best four years of my life. And so much so that I ended up doing a master's. And in my last year of undergrad, I started doing fitness and bodybuilding competitions. And what, what, I realized is how unhealthy that 
kind of lifestyle and mentality actually is. So that's what I decided to write my master's uh, dissertation about. I use myself as my own research subject. Um, it's a methodology, methodology called autoethnography. And so uh, with that, I basically self-reflected and self-critiqued and self-analyzed the whole experience that I had through bodybuilding competitions and fitness competitions. And what I realized is that um, the, the mentality behind that is not something that I liked. I thought that being a perform in performance or health focused uh, outcomes was an, a more optimal way to train and to look at life. And then during this time of undergrad master's, I was also uh, working with the varsity uh, sports teams at Western because part of my master's was in strength and conditioning. So I did a lot of different things with my education in that regard. But as I was doing my um, undergrad degree, kind of rewinding a little bit, um, there was a new uh, recreation facility being built at Western. And they were looking for fitness instructors, personal trainers, lifeguards, and I realized that all my friends were personal trainers and all my friends were fitness instructors, which I thought was great, but I thought, well, I'm not going to make any money because then we're always going to be fighting for shifts in classes. So I reached out to some of the coordinators and one of them said, well, we need aquafit instructors. So in my second year undergrad, I became certified. And then almost immediately after I had a friend reach out to me over Facebook because she needed someone to cover her prenatal aquafit classes. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I was asking around and someone said, well, why don't you go talk to Dr. Matola? She's an exercise and pregnancy researcher. She'll, she'll be able to give you some advice. And so I went to her office and, uh, yeah, it was just funny because I asked her, you know, what do I do? I'm teaching this office class. And she's like, well, have you read the guidelines? And I was like, no, have you read the permit extra pregnancy? I was like, no. And she said, well, I'd start there first. And so I go through these documents. I look at the references. I go through those documents. I'm like, but none of these tell me how to teach an aquafit class for pregnant women. And so, um, I started doing that, um, fairly consistently where I was uh, teaching that weekly. And I, it was basically trial by error and just learning and just looking at what the guidelines had stated and really trying to follow that example. But where I was going with this is that transitioned into postpartum mom and baby stroller fitness, and then also prenatal strength training. And even in my undergrad, which that was 2007 to 2011, there wasn't a lot of information on resistance training during pregnancy or even the benefits of resistance training after. And I just know from looking at my grandmother, hearing stories about her, and even, even my mother, my grandmother worked on the farm pretty much every day of her life. Like the story was that Annie was always pregnant or she had a baby on her hip while she was in the garden or doing stuff. So I said, you know, there's this, the, this idea that exercise is harmful or that, you know, you, you should restrict your exercise or that it's not good for you. Women should rest and they should eat and that they should relax during the pregnancies. And I thought about it and I'm like, I just don't believe that that's true. I have a really great role model. Well, two role models, my mom, my grandmother, that really showed that that's not necessarily the case. And then when you think about the obesity epidemic that we're seeing in especially Western society, but now it's trickling to all over into different parts of the world. Like, I think that there's a huge, um, huge gestational component to that. And we know we've seen this in, in the research that I've done and in, in the research that um, my lab mates have done and my supervisor that what happens in the womb is really important for laying the blueprints 
for the rest of not only your child's life, but your grandchild's life. So, I mean, I think I, I attribute a lot of my genes and, and my activity levels and all that to my grandmother and my mother. And I think there is definitely a generational impact and we see it in, in rats and mice. So that's really why I wanted to take um, this research uh, direction with my PhD. And I took some time off between my master's and PhD to work. I was working, teaching uh, fitness classes and serving, and I really enjoy teaching. That, that's my passion. I love teaching in an academic university or college setting. So I teach at Anshaw College right now. I'm teaching at Western. I teach at the German Sports University. I have a contract there every summer to go and teach for a couple of weeks, but it's just one of those things that I love to do. And I knew I could not do this full-time without having a PhD, but I also said I would never go back to school to do a PhD unless it was something that I was super passionate about and I felt that I knew a lot about already and that I could contribute to not just the, the research, but to the world or to the people that I work with, which the people that I work with are pregnant and postpartum individuals. That's like the year before, the year after you deliver, that's my jam. That's who I want to work with. That's my ideal client. So that in a nutshell is how I got to where I am now and kind of my mentality in, in getting there, because I just, I really believe that women should be active, that women are strong. And when you think about labor and delivery lasting, you know, anywhere from three to 36 hours, like you need to be strong. You need to have endurance. You need to be mentally focused for those things and activity exercise, even like if sport competition really helps women to train for, uh, for that day and those, uh, instances. So yeah, those are, that's, that's kind of what I believe in, uh, how I got into everything. What an interesting background. I knew that you had the body building part to it, but I didn't know that you had done a master's. I did not do research well enough into your background with that. And, <laughs> but so how interesting, because you do See, I mean, it's, it's actually quite popular here that um, a lot of women do it. And a lot of, you know, women who have older children who then find it and get into it. And I've always wondered about the psychological impact on that. So what, um, what did you end, because I haven't read it yet and now I'm going to have to go back and read it, but what did you, like, what was the conclusion with the master section on that part, even though it's totally different than what we're going to talk about today, but I'm so interested. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what I basically discussed was the stereotypes surrounding female bodybuilding and fit and fitness competitors. And as someone, I competed in bikini, I competed, um, competed in fitness and I competed in physique. And when I was competing, they actually cut women's bodybuilding as a category because they deemed it was unnatural for women to look that way. And I said, well, part of my argument was, well, it's unnatural for men to look that way, but there's this, um, this, ideal in society that women aren't allowed to take up space physically like the smaller and more petite we are the better and men it's all about being bigger because the bigger they are and the more space they take up it's more acceptable so i i basically dove into these ideas a little bit more why we think that certain things are inappropriate for women but we think they're appropriate for men. And what I uh, concluded overall, because essentially I was studying myself. So my master's thesis, it's basically all these things that while I was competing, people would tell me, you look so great. You know, you, you, uh, you, you're so fit. And I was like, I feel like crap. <laughs> I'm so tired. I'm 
on fat burners. And like, I had a great coach. He was also doing uh, his PhD at Western in the nutrition lab. So he was very, very like regimented, like making sure that I still felt a, like had a little bit of normalcy, but when you're weighing your food, when you're counting your calories, when, you know, you have to go to the gym twice a day, once in the morning to do cardio in the afternoon, like I was exhausted. And even though I looked great, I felt like crap and I didn't feel strong. I felt weak. And then when you get up on stage, you're judged basically just on how you look. And I realized that my conclusion was that I'm going to stick to uh, performance um, and outcome-based activities that are, are quantifiable. So whether it's like playing sports because I love it and like, because there's a health component to that, or it's just, I'm going to do, I got into CrossFit for a little bit and uh, even powerlifting because there's quantifiable ways to measure my progress there, as opposed to, well, you need to build up your glutes a little bit more, or, you know, your shoulders need to be built up or you need to lose some, uh, you know, lean down just a little bit more like that to me. I just, I couldn't handle it anymore. It's funny how you talk about quantifiable outcome measures and now you're doing a PhD. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So with all of your interests, how did you then decide, because you know, with a PhD, it's so much more specific about what you're trying to answer. So then how did you decide what you wanted to look at? And because I know that like you sent me some studies and I've read through quite a, quite a bit of what you have been working on. Um, but what specifically are you hoping to be able to answer knowing that it will give you 50 more questions that you want to look at? <laughs> I know, right? I, um, so uh, when I came into the, the lab for my PhD, I, I had to wait a couple of years because my supervisor had so many students, there was a lot of different projects going on. And then one of the projects when I was coming in, there were two that she said I could basically run with. And one was looking at um, uh, postpartum uh, exercise interventions and looking at uh, feasibility but also looking at the outcome of a resistance training or and cardiovascular training intervention, or um, I could look at uh, brain imaging with a mother and infant and, and do some uh, research in, in that regard. But the way uh, my background is a lot more, um, I do more exercise physiology, but also more sociocultural because my master's was in more of qualitative research. And then my work was, you know, fitness and exercise training. So, uh, I just, I, I, as much as I thought the, the mother infant one would be really interesting. I really, as soon as she said postpartum exercise, I was like, yes, I'm all in. And so now, uh, that study, so there was actually supposed to be three parts to it. And the third part ended up not happening because of COVID. And so uh, the first part uh, we basically are looking at, and my question is, can we increase program adherence when we include infants in the exercise intervention? And is it feasible to include infants in the exercise intervention or is it distracting? So what we did was we had um, our early postpartum group and then a late postpartum. And we didn't even really categorize it by the the postpartum age, more so the infant age. So 20 weeks was our cutoff. So if someone was 20 weeks or uh, later, that's when their infant can actually support their neck a little bit better. That's when they can sit up straight. So that's how we basically broke them down uh, into groups. And uh, we had volunteers at the classes 
we did like mom and baby stroller fitness type where we had a, the track, we'd do some track walking or jogging. We'd stop and do a circuit. We'd do some track jogging, walking, and then another circuit and then a cool down. And, um, unfortunately our, the data, I can say this right now because I have it up in front of me, but we, we found like the adherence was about the same, um, as opposed to, you know, all the research that I've read out there looking at, um, you know, just the impact of, of maternal, uh, physical activity interventions. Now, the thing about this is a lot of studies don't actually list their adherence. So they'll say that we had a dropout rate of, of whatever. And realistically, our dropout rate was minuscule. We we, bear, we had like, I think 10% of our, our study dropout, which is really, really good overall. But the adherence part was still about 30%. However, when we actually examined why people were not attending classes, it was really interesting. So a lot of it was, you know, there was some sort of like family event or social event that they were attending. So whether they had family visiting or they had a wedding or they were moving, that was a, a big one as well. Or whether there was one day where I think out of my entire group of 20 women, I had five women show up to class because the weather was so bad that day in Canada that no one could get there or there was a traffic light down the other day. So, you know, there was there were some factors that just weren't controllable. Like it wasn't that they didn't want to be there. It was there was something else going on. So I thought that was really interesting as an outcome. It's not necessarily for lack of desire or wanting to be there. Um, and another component we looked at is, you know, what, with a new mom, a lot of the, the research has shown that time and infant care is, are the primary concerns. And so we tried to eliminate that. Like we were, we basically had the classes, like you're in and out within an hour and you can use your baby for the exercises. But if you don't want to use your baby, we have volunteers that will hold your baby the entire time. So you can just exercise. They can crawl on the floor if they want. They can, you know, they can be held by the volunteers. And honestly, Overall, from a feasibility perspective, it was great in a research setting. Taking that into uh, more of an application setting, I don't know if I could, I, if we could get volunteers to look after uh, babies, it'd be great. And even with my um, my business, I take on interns from Western uh, during the school year. And what I have them do is basically help me at stroller classes. And they love it. First of all, they're getting the exposure of like learning about postpartum exercise. They love working with babies, which is part of the reason they're doing their internship with me. But the moms love it because now if their baby cries, they don't worry about it. I just say, no, nope, that's what we have our intern here for. She's going to go. She'll rock your stroller because right now that's my job. I've got like a stroller and my foot, a stroller in each hand. And if a baby gets upset when we're stopping for a circuit, I'm the person that's like rocking and soothing them in their strollers. So, I mean, overall, that was uh, that's what we looked at. It's just, is this feasible? Is it a good study design? Can we increase uh, program adherence. And what we did say is we decreased dropout rate significantly. So that was, that was a really um, beneficial part. And then the second part of that a study was looking at the early versus late postpartum intervention. Like, is there a benefit to starting earlier versus later uh, when we look at the outcomes that we were analyzing? And it was from everything from weight, uh, body composition, uh, mental health. So we did the EPDS, so the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale Questionnaire. Um, and uh, overall, uh, what I'm, I'm seeing in the data and what I'm writing about is that the earlier we can start an intervention, the better, because essentially both groups almost started at the same when we look at our, our means. 
uh, and they ended, they were able to improve or decrease whatever variable uh, quite consistently between both groups by the end of the intervention. So if we are looking at weight loss or, you know, body composition, looking at fat mass reduction, if we can do that earlier on, it's, it's a lot more beneficial than later on when your kid's actually a little bit busier, when maybe you have less time because your baby's not napping as frequently. And uh, yeah, so that that's essentially what I'm working on writing up right now and analyzing is just that early versus late and comparing the two. And then the, the third study was actually doing a randomized control trial, um, which we ended up having to, to scrap because of COVID. So that's when I had to shift gears and basically wrote my entire new third study over COVID while doing my comps exams. Because in Canada, I don't know if you have this in Australia, but in Canada, we have to do comprehensive exams. So you write like your, your perspectives of like, this is what I plan and intend to do. And then you get a committee together and then they just, they give you a bunch of readings to do. And then they, they quiz you on everything at the end. So it was pretty stressful to do both, but I'm here. I made it. It's good. Um, but what, what uh, influenced that was learning about pelvic health and rehabilitation through working with um, these moms in my study, but also working with people in my, my work setting where, you know, people were talking about um, pelvic floor health in the sense of I, I pee when I jump or I'm, or I'm getting doming when I do a crunch. What does that mean? How do I fix this? Um, and then also I feel a heaviness, um, or sex is painful with my partner. Like these were all common trends that were coming up in, uh, in discussions amongst the mothers and, and amongst uh, my conversations with the mothers and overhearing these conversations. And so thinking about, you know, autoethnography, I was like, well, this is a lived experience that they're all experiencing. So there has to be something out there about this. And so I just started to look into the literature. And uh, one thing that was really uh, prevalent was this um, relationship between uh, pelvic floor health or dysfunction and then depression, not only in postpartum women, but just in the general population as a whole. So we know that there's a relationship there. And we also know looking at, you know, Carrie Bowe's um, research group and even Ingrid Nygaard in the States, they they publish a lot about uh, pelvic floor health and physical activity. And so we know that there's a direct impact on the pelvic floor from certain types of physical activity. So, and then we also know that there's a relationship between physical activity and depression. So my third study is looking at these three variables, physical activity, postpartum depression, and pelvic floor health and seeing like what came first, the chicken or the egg? Can we predict women's like depression state by their physical activity levels, can we also predict which women are going to be um, having pelvic floor health or dysfunction uh, issues based on uh, their depression score or based on their physical activity level? So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm going. Again, that's I'm still collecting data. So if you have listeners that are postpartum and you know you want <laughs> they want to uh, they want to be a part of it, I would m love for them to uh, to fill out my survey. But that's essentially what I'm looking at because. There's the relationship there, but we don't know how these variables intersect. And that's what I'm hoping to analyze. So if you aren't a patient of mine and you haven't gone back and listened to the episode on the Empowered Motherhood Program, listen up. Actually, everyone listen up because this is amazing. The Empowered Motherhood Program is an incredible online program and mobile app that combines physio-led exercise and expert education for every stage of pregnancy, birth, and the postnatal journey. 
It's created by the Australian Physiotherapy Association's titled Women's Health Physiotherapist, Liz Evans, and Pregnancy and Postnatal Exercise Specialist and former elite netball athlete, Kimmy Smith. It has week-by-week programs which start from five weeks of pregnancy all the way through to the first year postpartum. Alongside Kimmy and Liz, the EMP includes expert interviews with an obstetrician, psychologist, dietitian, midwife, and more. The pregnancy program has been created with up-to-date medical pregnancy guidelines and includes a combination of strength, Pilates, cardio, and bar classes, but I know some people call them barre, but with a French background, seriously, it's bar. Um, Yoga, guided meditation, a program for women experiencing pelvic girdle pain, and a complete birth preparation series, which includes physio-led birth prep classes, as well as expert interviews and education. The postnatal program is designed to be started from birth and their birth recovery program includes both vaginal and C-section week-by-week recovery programs. It includes functional progressive exercises to help women return to exercise safely and confidently. It has programs for pelvic organ prolapse, pelvic floor injuries such as incontinence and obstetric injuries such as anal sphincter tearing, as well as a complete eight-week return to running program. They offer a free trial for maternal health care providers, so you can look around the app and you can also have the option to list your clinic on the Empowered Motherhood program, find a physio page, so you can receive referrals from their members. So head to empoweredmother.com.au or look for the link on the show notes. We're back. We are back. So how much longer do you have in order to finish all this research? Uh, well, I have 234 women who filled out my uh, survey thus far, and I would like to have 500. So um, how much time will that be open? Um, and I was hoping to leave it open until the end of the month. Okay, cool. Well, that will be perfect timing because I will put this out there. What is the um, eligibility criteria? So you just have to be able to speak and read English. Uh, be 18 years of age or older and have a, delivered a baby in the last year. Within the last 12 months. Okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it doesn't matter about vaginal cesarean section. Nope. There's questions that can. ask. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, we will get you your 500. <laughs> Don't worry. Yeah, I hope so. So I'll leave it open even a little bit longer. How about yeah. that? I'll leave it open until mid-June. If, if uh, and, and it takes about 20 minutes. It just uh, depends. Yeah. But the, the cool thing is, Uh, And I'm sure you're familiar with this um, uh, questionnaire, but the Australian pelvic health uh, screening questionnaire. So I've included, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So that's one that I include, which is, which is a really unique one because it does really deep dive into uh, all the areas of pelvic health, not only just health, but also function. And most of the other ones are missing that sexual function aspect where this Mm. one includes it in all, uh, areas. So yeah, it's, uh, it's great. And then there's also room for comments. So, um, for instance, like if a woman is asked, you know, is she currently sexually active? She can put if she is or not, why not essentially. So I have a few, um, uh, responses that I've already read through already. And it's like, Oh, you know, I'm not six weeks yet. It's funny. Cause it's like, I'm not six weeks yet. It's like six weeks is this like imaginary like line of like when you can do everything again and it's just not always the case right which I'm sure you can understand 
Oh yeah. Oh, well that's look, that study is going to be so needed and I cannot wait until you, I can't wait till you're finished it, but I know how long that all these things take within the research that you've done already, or even like clinical experience other than, is there anything else other than pelvic floor that you have found for, um, like, what have you found to be a barrier for these mothers being able to participate and adhere to exercise and activity, or is it pelvic floor that's driving a lot of that? Uh, yeah. So with my studies, some of the interesting, like variables that I found with studies one and two, um, was that, uh, we had six women drop out of the study overall out of those six women, three of them could not perform a body weight squat at their baseline assessment. So is it because of functional mobility? We don't know, but I thought that was interesting that 50% of the women who dropped out the one thing that they all had in common. And again, it's a small sample size because I only had 52 women in, uh, in the study. So um, again, to be discovered and, and uh, investigated a bit more, but that was really interesting as well. Uh, women who participated in the study, we only had four women who were above uh, 13 on the EPDS score. So at risk for, uh, or actually, no, we had, it was above nine, my, my apologies. So at risk or with clinical depression and uh, within that number over the course of the intervention by the end, we actually only had one person that scored above a nine. So we saw that, you know, the exercise had had a positive impact on the mental health component. The women who scored higher on the EPDS um, were women who were first time mothers. So if, if they were a second time mother, they, their scores were, were in the normal range or below nine, um, but a lot of first time moms scored higher on the EPDS. Uh, and then in regards to who missed classes or who was a, unable to attend, that was really variable. Uh, what I did find was the women that, who, that were late more often were women who had other children. Um, and then there were a few women who missed classes because their other kids were sick. So having multiple children could decrease your adherence in an exercise intervention because now you're not just caring for one, you're caring for both. Right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, just kind of like, you know, really, really just interesting things that you're, you're just like, I don't know why, why would this be, you know, why is this like this? So again, to be explored maybe in more detail by somebody else who wants to do a PhD in this area. But, um, the other cool thing about um, my study is we're working with a, an Italian group at the university of Verona and they did a similar study, uh, looking at resistance in postpartum women specifically. So we did the combined resistance training cardio and we had cardiovascular component. They just did resistance training. We did the same baseline measures. Uh, we did the same uh, timeline of intervention. And so when I'm done with my dissertation at Western, I'm actually going to go over to Italy again, and we're going to publish that data as well, hopefully concurrently so that we can actually have a comparable data set from Italy to Canada and looking at slightly well, looking at the same barriers with slightly, slightly different intervention and seeing if that makes a difference as well. That is amazing. So going to Italy to do that, going to Germany to do some lecturing just all over the place. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if it was with the Italian group, but you also did a study where you did a systematic review and meta-analysis looking at just walking for postpartum depressive symptoms. Yes. So how, yeah, yeah, yeah. where did that come about and what did you find with just walking as an exercise? 
Yeah. So when we were um, initially uh, looking into that project, it was actually a master's thesis project um, by a student at Western. And so uh, her supervisor asked myself and then also my supervisor to come on board for that. And uh, she wanted to look at uh, exercise interventions and, and postpartum uh, depression. And when we when she said exercise, I'm like, well, what exercise specifically? Because exercise People don't realize this. Exercise and physical activity are this big, it's this big scope, right? It's not just this tiny little uh, subsection. It's actually a big, uh, big area. And so I said, I think you need to be a little bit more specific with this question. And so she's like, you know what, I'm going to look at walking and, and trying to find uh, studies on walking. And it's, it's kind of difficult because not everyone measures walking the same way in research. So some people use accelerometers or step counts. Some people are using time. So how many minutes per day you're partaking in an activity. Some people, some researchers use RPM. So like how difficult was the, the bout of walking that, that you did? So yeah, it was a really, really interesting uh, to kind of like basically um, it was more of a supervising and, uh, and kind of just contributing uh, from my knowledge base and what I know, but uh, but yeah, no, that was a really cool project to be a part of. And we published it, I believe in the uh, Women's Health uh, Physical Therapy Journal. So I'm gonna backtrack a little bit too, because there was another question that I had looking at some of your research, and I'm just trying to find the title, the impact of the postpartum exercise intervention on maternal health outcomes and infant physical activity and sleep behaviors. How do infants come into this? How are you measuring infant physical activity? I mean, I can see how you'd measure sleep behavior. Where did that come in? How does that work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a part of uh, studies one and two. So what we did was we also gave them uh, the mothers uh, a questionnaire um, for the infant. So it was the infant uh, uh, physical activity and behaviors questionnaire. And so they would fill that out at every visit and over and within that questionnaire, it's like a hundred and something questions. And some of them are on, there's a subset on infant physical activity and just different variables and, and um, markers of physical activity. So crawling, walking, sitting, standing, those kinds of things. And then also how they're sleeping. And so women would fill this out at their visits when they were doing their, their baseline and then their post-intervention physical, and then also written assessments for the study. And so, um, that was a, a sub-analysis that was also used in that other mother, remember I was talking about the mother-infant uh, study. So we also use that questionnaire um, and it's Molly Manley that uh, who's doing her master's who pr- uh, published a lot of that research. But yeah, we it's basically a questionnaire based looking at everything that the infant was doing. And then we sub-analyzed just sections of that questionnaire um, and then looked at specifically physical activity, which over the course of the intervention, physical activity increased in the infant, but that's also because, you know, they're growing, they're getting bigger, they're moving more, but they're also, especially um, in the 20 plus weeks of, of age uh, infants, they were even participating in the exercises with the mothers because once they're toddler age and they're running around and crawling, they don't want to lay in their stroller anymore. So the mothers were using them 
pretty much for all the exercises um, or they were just running around with the volunteers the entire time. So that was really cute to watch and see. Um, but that was a, a big uh, not noticeable difference between the early postpartum group that we had and then the late postpartum group is the early postpartum group with the infants who were aged like six to 18, 19 weeks. They stayed in the stroller the majority of the time and the mothers just used dumbbells that was equivalent to the baby's weight or less um, as a, uh, as a part of the, the intervention. And then uh, with the sleep behaviors, again, looking at just self-reported from the mother, like how is your infant sleeping? How many times do they get up to, to feed during the night? How long is their sleep duration? Those kinds of things uh, were the data that we collected over the, the intervention as well. So interesting. I love that you included that part of it too. Now, there were a few other things um, that I wanted to touch on, which I don't know are, if they're a part of your research, but you did mention, so you were talking about another one of your interests were breastfeeding and hormone changes postpartum, but also periodization for postpartum individuals. Tell me more about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm a strength and conditioning coach now, and I have been for a few years. And so working in this field, periodization is, is the name of the game for me. And and I always tell the women that I work with, like, no one's thought more about every exercise, everything that we do together more than me. No one has, because this is all I do every day. And one thing that's really missing in the conversations when we talk about prenatal training and postpartum return to exercise is periodization. And I say that I like to see my clients and even my research participants as athletes. And so if you had an athlete, Olympic level, whatever, and you're getting them ready for a competition. I see labor and delivery as your competition. So your baby's birthday is your competition day. That is, that's what I train you for during pregnancy. And how we do that is we start with strength-based and I really focus on strengthening and rehab. If you've had any prior injuries, even if they happened when you were eight years old, they're going to come back during your pregnancy. Like we know that anything that's happened at over the course of a, of a woman's life during pregnancy, those injuries come back because of relaxing because their bodies are changing so rapidly. They get new injuries or aches or pains and strains in different places. And so really that's the foundation that I start with. And then over the course of um, their gestational age, I work on more endurance because they're going to need that endurance for their delivery date. So we even do like Tabata styles by the end where, it's like, you know, 60 seconds on 60 seconds off because 60 seconds is the length of a contraction. Like it starts, you know, around 10 to 30 seconds, but it goes up to 60. So I take that into consideration. I'm like, what positions are you going to want to birth in? What positions maybe are more ideal to birth? And in? we include that in the rest and recovery. And then uh, postpartum, just like if you had an athlete competing at the Olympics, they compete then what do they do? You need to rest. Like once you've delivered a baby, you've got a huge plate size wound in your abdomen from where that placenta was attached. Right. And if you're too active too quickly, you're going to notice you're going to get some spotting or bleeding, which is not good, not ideal. But also we have just spent 10 months stretching out your abdominal tissues and tendons and ligaments. And that passive strength doesn't return until about seven months postpartum. Now we can accelerate that a little bit by specific types of training. And how I, I do that initially is I get women, because I'm not a physiotherapist, so I always get women to see a physiotherapist, but then I basically kind of take 
um, that periodization model during pregnancy. And I kind of flip it back again. So we start with, you know, base strength, like let's start with just breathing and moving. Let's start with your basic movement patterns, your squat, your hinge, your pushes, your presses, and some core stuff. So safely transitioning the core stuff. So uh, one example is the plank. Um, as a woman progresses in her pregnancy, I increase her plank height, which is easy to do if you have a barbell rack, because then you can just move the, the rung up each week. But uh, when she's postpartum, I do the reverse. So you start high and then over the months of your postpartum journey, we get you back down slowly, but surely to that full plank, ideally around, you know, the eight to 10 month uh, postpartum mark. So yeah, that's, there's a lot that goes into that because sometimes I'll, uh, and oftentimes I train women who don't train with me during pregnancy, but train with me postpartum. So some of them have a, a foundation of, of strength training or exercise training. Some of them don't, some of them are still carrying excess weight from their pregnancies. Some of them are, have maybe just always had a little bit of excess weight and we're trying to find good exercises that fit for all body types, shapes, and sizes and abilities. So yeah, periodization to me is like one of the most important things, especially with this population, because when I first started, this wasn't a consideration. This was something that I had to really learn just as I went and doing my master's in strength and conditioning, working with varsity teams, you know, varsity athletes who are recovering from injuries and rehabbing from injuries are pretty similar to postpartum women recovering from injuries. Like you want to take the injury into consideration, which for these women, it's core strength and, and uh, pelvic floor health. But then also like, we also want to give them a well-rounded training approach. And so I really try to use periodization with every single client. And even in my classes, I tell women, like, I'll come around, I'll correct you if needed. It's not necessarily because you're doing something wrong, but I want you to get the maximum benefit of the exercise. And I always give women three exercises to choose from. So it's not, I'm like, this is, this is beginner. This is intermediate. This is advanced. If you've done a, you know, a round of stroller with me, you can try this one or this one. If you're new, I want you to start here. If that feels okay, then you can progress to the next one, the next time, or by the last round in the circuit. So I really try to be flexible because at the end of the day, everyone's pregnancy journey is different. Everyone's delivery uh, story is different. And then everyone's postpartum uh, journey is different. So you can't give like a cookie cutter approach, but in some ways I've almost made like a, a, a good template of a, a cookie cutter uh, approach that I can prescribe women that now I feel safe with. And I use the pretty much the same program every single uh, year with my postpartum clients, even with my prenatal clients, like there's the core exercises you want to be doing. And then you basically fine tune based on how the woman's feeling that day. If they're dealing with any sort of, uh, nagging injuries or issues. So during pregnancy, a big one is, uh, uh, pubic synthesis dysfunction, had a lot of women experience that. So you have to modify, right? Like sometimes women can't lunge or even walk. So it's like, Hey, we're going to do stationary squats today, or, you know, RDL, some sort of hinge exercise. Um, so yeah, I would say that overall, I try to be very cognizant of their training history and try to individualize it as much as possible, especially working one-on-one, but in a group setting, I have a template that I follow and, by, by 12 weeks, like I, I had a group of women who started training with me at the beginning of the year. So in January, and then by the end of the year, so during stroller, I should need to prequel this. We do something called leapfrogs where the mom at the back of the line jogs and then joins into the front of the line and starts walking again. And so, um, that's a leapfrog. And so we usually have everyone go through leapfrog one time on week one, week two, we do it twice. Week three, three times, week four, four, and then we go up to six for week six. 
when I had my women that trained with me for an entire year, we were actually jogging and women were sprinting the leapfrog because they had four sessions of stroller down. Like it was, it was so crazy. And I said to them, I said, you guys have been the best example of like what consistency and training postpartum can do like where you were at. And a lot of them said to me, I'm more fit now than I like, than I've ever been. Or maybe like when I was running track in high school, I might've been more fit, but they, they're like, I feel stronger. I'm more fit now than I've ever been. And I'm like, that's, that's what I love to hear. That's, that's music to my ears right there. Um, so that I'm trying to picture how many people in a stroller and where you would find the space to how many people are you think, how many people are doing this? I'm trying to visualize well, this in a park. Yeah. Yeah. So 10, usually 10. So 10 strollers, what we call the prams here, (laughs) Um, (laughs) 10 of them leapfrogging. Where is the space? Like you have to have a massive. So, so we, we stay like on the trail tight to the right hand side. And so we'll be like the stroller moms, nine of them will be walking. And then one comes out and jogs. And then when that mom's about halfway up the line then the other mom will jog, um, and even like intensity wise, like I always say, like we're jogging, it's a light jog, you know, but then by the end of the six weeks, they can maybe increase the intensity. And that's what, that's where the benefit of like having a pelvic floor physiotherapist working with your part, like clients or individuals is amazing. Like I don't, that's out of my scope of practice. I can see if you have diastasis, I can't officially diagnose you, even though you could probably diagnose yourself, right? Just depending on what you, what you know, but, um, yeah, I, I have a really good team of, of physios in, in London here. And I refer my patients and clients to them all the time. They send them to me too, because they just know that I know what I'm doing, but the worst thing, uh, that someone can do postpartum is jump into things too quickly. Like I, and I, I know women who do it. They're like, I lifted during my pregnancy. I can go back to the gym they go back for their first workout and it's like 20 kettlebell swings on the, the board and they start and they're like, this doesn't feel good. I'm like, no, it's not going to, because your core is not strong right now. Like your spine is not protected. So now we're just basically adding insult to injury. So yeah, I think that's the biggest teaching piece because as much as I'm an advocate for activity and getting women back into exercise and movement postpartum, there's also that caveat of, you have to be careful what you do and there's a safe way of doing it and there's a better way of doing it. Um, or there's a way that, you know, maybe you're going to have problems later on down the road, pelvic floor health wise, and especially in menopause, that's when it all comes back, whatever a woman does or doesn't do properly from a rehab perspective during, uh, and after pregnancy is going to inevitably, uh, come back and she's going to see those issues again in menopause. And so that's, that's now my newest teaching tool of, you know, we want to make sure that you're not only strong postpartum, uh, you know, maybe to have another baby because the late postpartum period of one pregnancy is technically the early, uh, preconception period of another pregnancy, if you're having multiple children. Right. So I don't want to just get you, you know, ready for your next pregnancy, but I want to get you ready for life. I want to get you prepared for whatever menopause is going to bring you in and those things uh, down the road or at any life events. Right. So that's, that's my, that's my mentality. That's my philosophy in, in this, uh, in how I train my clients and, and how I really do try to use periodization to give my clients the best uh, outcomes possible in training, but also like, where do you find time? 
because you're doing your PhD <laughs> and doing running your own business. Um, so you've, you've got this last study and then you're going to do some research in menopause. <laughs> I'm assuming. No, no, I'm staying no. away from menopause. Okay. Honestly, honestly, my, my thing that I'm doing is I, first of all, I don't have kids. So let's just throw that. I'm Well, I'm an egg mom. So I donated my eggs on March 1st of 2020, right before the pandemic. And they had a baby girl in the fall. So technically, genetically (laughs) speaking, um, I do have uh, (laughs) a baby up there somewhere. But, um, you know, I have a lot of I have a lot more time right now because I don't have kids. Like I know you have kids. And I, I honestly look at you, Lori, and I'm like, how do you do it all? Because I see what you're putting out there and posting and I see your papers and I'm like, what excuse do I have? And even with some of my moms, like I've had moms doing their PhD while they're having kids. And I'm like, you guys inspire me. They, they used to make fun of me because I told them that during my master's, I would write my thesis from midnight to 6am. I did it over the course of course of a month. I would go take the last bus to campus, sit in my office all night, write, go, go home, have a nap, teach stroller. And I was like, yeah, I've been up all night just writing my thesis. And they're like, Oh my goodness. And I was like, okay, raise your hand. If you were up at least once last night with the, with your kid. And then they all put up their hand. I'm like, exactly. I was like, so me staying up all night working on my baby, you know, <laughs> is no different than what you guys do every single day. So I always find like you inspire me. My mom's inspire me. And that's honestly the driving factor to wanting to put this research out there. As I said in the beginning, I did not want to go back into a PhD if I didn't think it would be valuable. And I didn't think that it would help people. And, uh, and I'm really hoping that it does. That's, that's kind of the, the, I think the wish of any researcher and that it's also, (laughs) I'm trying to find just ways to put it in layman's terms so that everyone can understand it. So I ended up, I don't know if you saw, but I published a, uh, an infographic kind of, but it's like an Instagram post. So Western was doing this thing that, that needs to be done more. And that's what I'm doing a lot with my uh, side projects. So I've also got another company that I'm starting called precision pregnancy, and it's basically taking research um, and, and putting it into layman's terms and posting it on social media. So it's just like, if you want to learn about different aspects and right now, my main focus is, is exercise because that's what I do yeah. the most of, but, um, I think that's, what's missing with research is that I, I've always said the people that would benefit the most from reading all these papers are not people that are ever going to have an access to them or will ever sit down to read them. So how do we get people informed without having them go and try to search an article on PubMed. It's it's great what you're doing because I see that you do a lot of like knowledge translation and also knowledge into practice, which is so important because what, what what is the point of doing all this if we can't actually apply it in a clinical or practical setting? Which I mean, it never had a term before, but knowledge translation is really big now. Um, but you're right. Like no, people do not have access to this and social media is the way that everyone gets their information. And there's so much of it that is wrong out there. Sorry. So if we can um, make it as easy as possible for them to get it 20 years before they may have heard it, because remember how long it can take for people to actually hear about the stuff that we're doing, which A is why we're doing this yeah. podcast, but how cool with that other side project. That is brilliant. So is it just going to be your stuff or is it going to be everything that you're able to find to be able to give people all that information? 
ideally I'm writing a book about it. So because there was this one book that I, I've read and I don't know if you're familiar, but it's called Expecting Better. And it's uh, by Emily Austin and she is a, um, she is a statistician. And when she became pregnant, she wanted to basically figure out and almost debunk some myths around pregnancy. And so she went to the research and she deep dove into all the stats, all the numbers, all the data and broke down everything from like postpartum depression risk to drinking during pregnancy to like just delivery methods. And so that's the book I recommend women read when they are pregnant, because I said, yeah, you can read what to expect when you're expecting, but there's still a lot of myths out there about different things. So I said, read this, this is like the science. And especially a lot of my clients are doctors, physios. So they like the numbers. Right. Um, but that, I would say is one of the top books that I recommend um, for people to read because it just, it really breaks everything down. And that's what I'm hoping to do with, um, with this, the side project where it's, it's going to be just information only. So uh, right now we do journal clubs and, and kind of like article reviews in my lab, but I'm hoping every week, eventually once I'm done my PhD is just bring on someone uh, who just recently published and do like a, like a critique with them or even just, uh, interview people on a paper that they recently published and to really give people that insight about how they came about, like deciding what their methods were, what uh, variables they were going to use, and then essentially just talking about the results. So uh, I think it's, I just think it's so beneficial. And especially like, talking to so many doctors, even an OB, you need to know so much about this area. I have doctors that listen to podcast episodes where they basically do that. They, the podcasters will read a bunch of articles and then just do like a 10 minute synopsis on each one. And I, and they say like how valuable that is for them, because as a doctor with a full-time, um, you know, patient, uh, practice, you're not going to have the time to do that, especially if you're a mom and other things. So even making it easy for healthcare practitioners and providers to, to do it is important. And, and that's my next goal is really reaching out to the community uh, here in London of, of physicians, OBs, and, and gynecologists, because at the end of the day, I believe based on the research that I've read and, and the time that I've spent in this, that women should, whether or not they delivered vaginally or had a cesarean delivery, go see a physiotherapist, a public floor physio after birth. But yet we don't see them getting scripts for physio. They have their six week follow-up. Does everything feel okay? Yeah. Okay. See ya. And I just think it's such an injustice, especially because when you look at countries like France, where it's standard care and, and standard practice there, I think to simply write a script it is really easy to do. And it's, it's almost that peace of mind that at least now you've been able to transfer the care over. If something's wrong, there's going to be a person that's equipped to handle that. And with um, OBs and, and gynecologists, like they don't always have the time to, to follow up with that standard of care where physiotherapists, like I, I always tell my students who, uh, who are in my undergrad classes, I'm like, if you decide you want to go the physio way, if anyone becomes a pelvic floor physiotherapist, I will make you rich because I, I, that's literally who I send everyone to. And it's almost, I, I almost, I don't say I require it, but I say I almost require it from um, my women participating because I can only do so much. You only know so much. And when so many changes have happened to your body in such a short period of time, what your body feels like and what feels normal has changed. Mm. So how do we get back? 
to what we think was normal if we don't really have an understanding of what that actually was. Is that, so that makes sense, you yeah. know, like that. And that's why I think that that uh, piece is really important. And so the that's the number one thing I would say that I've taken away from my, my research and my PhD is just everyone should go see a pelvic floor physiotherapist, just period. But definitely if, uh, if you're planning to get pregnant, go see one before your pregnancy, go see one during, and then go see one after. And that's like one of the best things you can do. Thanks for that plug for physio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, I'm going to include all of the links of where your articles are, the survey, your business adventures, plural, yeah. so that anyone who wants to find you can find you because again, an hour is just never enough to want to talk about all of this stuff. Like I'm just, you know, you keep, the more that you talk, I'm like, Oh my God, why is it taking me so long to find you? <laughs> like how, have yeah, I, I know how have we well, that's when I found you. I was like, yeah, I was like, Oh my gosh. I was like, there's someone in the world that's doing similar research to me. I'm like, hi, how are you? <laughs> oh, and it's so brilliant. And I can't wait to be able to like meet more international people face to face again. Um, this makes it so much easier to be able to connect with people, especially when we're so far away. Um, but mm -hmm. I really do miss um, being able to travel and actually see people face-to-face. -face. Yeah. It'll be so nice. Um, so hopefully we'll meet face-to-face -face at some point, but um, thank you so much for your time and all of the research that you're doing and for, you are so passionate about what you're doing. I absolutely love it. And I, yeah, I just can't wait to see everything that you um, get out of this. Thank you, Laura. Yeah, I mean, I love what I do and that's why it's literally everything that I do. So by now, I would have stopped listening to someone's podcast. So if you're still listening, hey there. Um, I don't know if anyone has seen a recent post that I put on Instagram, but there are there's some exciting things happening with this podcast that I'm not going to tell you about. <laughs> so if you're still listening, haha, there's there's no secret at the end, but there is a secret, but I just can't tell you yet. But I'm really excited. So I hope that everyone um, subscribes so you don't miss out. Stay tuned and all will be revealed in time.